1: Well, welcome back as we head into hour three for your drive home. It's a delight, privilege, high honor to welcome back in studio Congressman John Shattuck, former Congressman Shattuck represented Arizona's uh, former Congress, fourth congressional district here uh, from uh, whence uh, this uh, studio broadcasts where I currently live and uh, basically central uh, Phoenix and its uh, and its environs. He served in Congress for 16 years. He is now the head of president and founder of Shadig Associates Consulting, S-H-A-D-E-G-G, former chair of the Republican Study Committee and so many other things. It's great to have you here, sir. Thanks for being with us as you typically are on Wednesdays. It's great to
2: be here uh, and it's uh, a challenging and difficult time with what's going on. Uh, both here in the United States, specifically in Washington, where the chaos we thought had gone as far as it could has now gone further. Uh, and then the shocking discovery Saturday morning of uh, the heinous attack uh, by the Palestinians on Israel.
1: Well, those are the two main stories, uh, Washington and uh, Israel. Let's. Uh, we'll move to Israel, about which I, I'm guessing you have much more to say. But let's uh, let's start with Washington, D.C. We uh, well, I was putting it last week that um, the only part of government that was ultimately shut down by Republicans was the Republican part of government, which was the House of Representatives. Uh, There has now been a struggle to uh, fulfill the role of speaker, the position of speaker of the House of Representatives. Uh, As of our conversation right now, Congressman, it looks like Steve Scalise received the majority of votes in that. Um, I I don't know what 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 happens next. I guess they uh, what's your sense of what the goings on are in Washington, D.C. with regard to the Speaker of the House race?
2: Well, I hate to say it because I was a rebel rouser when I was there and especially as a freshman. But even beyond that, I think I've said on occasions in the past that uh, our uh, conservative group of freshman members uh, often made demands of leadership, but we made a point of never demanding something that the leadership literally could not achieve or could not do. Uh, So I think that gives me some credibility to be critical of the eight. And I am very critical. Uh, Unfortunately, I think this appears to have been more a a personality fight, uh, whether Mr. Gates uh, decided that uh, he just had to uh, use this opportunity to advance himself. uh, And it appears that advancing himself himself, is pretty much what he's all about. Uh, I actually know all of these players personally, except Gates. Gates never served when I was there, but uh, McCarthy, Jordan, and Scalise all did. I served with all three of them. Uh, I got to know all three of them. Um, McCarthy uh, was not, in my view, as conservative as I would have liked, but it's a pretty fair observation that most of America isn't as conservative <laughs> as I am. And so uh, for me to say uh, I have to have my ideological soulmate as the speaker kind of takes me out of the discussion. It's an unrealistic expectation. Uh, what I admire, what I admired about uh, Mr. McCarthy before his election was his willing to, willingness to work and his good nature. Uh, I guess I also admired and admire even to this day his drive, his willingness to make uh, personal sacrifices in order to get the speech speakership, which it was quite clear that he wanted. Uh, but uh, he studied the issue. I think he figured out you have to listen to everybody in the conference. And I actually I, I applauded the fact uh, that it took 15 votes Not because you would want every speaker's race to do that, but because it is simply a process whereby those individuals who want to be speaker or the individual who wants to amass enough votes to become speaker has to get to know the members. And uh, Mr. McCarthy was willing to do that, to spend the time to get to know the members. We've had prior speakers who didn't give a hoot about the conservatives and had contempt for them and barely would acknowledge that they had a certificate of election. That's a bad situation. And we've had other uh, speakers who were much more egotistical. We've had other speakers who were much less tactical or, uh, I would say, prudent from a philosophical standpoint. I think I've told the stories. On occasion, Newt, who was a very hard worker, would get tired And he'd go to a press conference and uh, some reporter in the back of the room would ask him the same question he'd been asked six, eight, maybe even ten times before. And he would turn to that reporter and say, you stupid nincompoop. I've been asked that question eight times and I've answered it the same all eight times. Are you just brain dead? And, of course, uh, not only did that reporter now have it in for newt but every other reporter in the room knew you know he could take their head off just as well as he had just taken that the other reporters head off Uh, and uh, she or he said well obviously newt's not my friend I've watched uh, Kevin McCarthy on a number of occasions take very ugly questions put a grin on his face and give a very cheerful answer and that's I think critically important I suppose if you said to me who would I like to have be the speaker the most out of the three, it would be Jim Jordan, because I think Jim Jordan is uh, probably the smartest and definitely the most conservative. Uh, But the philosophical differences between the three of them isn't very great. The reality is this turns out to be more of an embarrassment than anything else. If they announce tonight or tomorrow that they've selected uh, Scalise, I'll be thrilled. Or that they've elected Jordan, I'll be thrilled. Or that they've done what I think they ought to do, which is have a motion to reconsider, uh, offered by somebody who is on the prevailing side, yeah, prevailing side and uh, reelect Kevin McCarthy. Um, what they need to do is recognize that they are supposed to be and have a duty to be serious adults, and to take their jobs seriously. And in this instance, to resolve this issue, not just now, but five days ago. Uh, it never, in my view, should have happened. Uh, and it should have been resolved behind closed doors, which, by the way, uh, we did in the in the uh, Newt Gingrich era. They would let us bring down a rule. Nobody understood what bring down a rule was. Not even the reporters in the press room right above us well what's this about what didn't they like about the rule i thought they made the 26th amendment in order why are they mad and then we'd go in the conference room close the door and start yelling at newton he'd start sometimes he'd start yelling at us sometimes he'd say you know that's pretty reasonable okay we'll do that so (laughs) but it all happened behind closed doors so i think this is tragic um i i think it will be worse if they don't make a decision uh, in the next 24 hours.
1: One of the things I do worry a little bit about, which is why I would have been with you if I were there, I would have been voting for Jim Jordan. I think his record, uh, well, I mean, I, I go off the ACU ratings. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Steve Scalise and Kevin McCarthy have the same ACU ratings, So you wonder what the trade was. I think they both sit about 91%. Jim Jordan, believe it or not, has a 100% rating, which I gather is is hard to do. But testifies to the level of what you were speaking of his uh his commitment to the conservative cause conservative movement which is one of the reasons i would have i would have probably voted for him likely voted for for jim jordan also his ability to articulate and his energy he has tremendous energy he does Um, we need energy um and i worry about that with scalise um he's been in leadership for a while so it's not as if he's uh uh green here or green behind the ears if that's the right expression but I do worry about the level of energy, uh, the level to uh, be uh, the kind of combatant we need and the kind of articulator and force for conservatism that we need. Um, I, I, that, that that That's just the concern I have.
2: There, there's an aspect to Jim Jordan that people don't mention very often and that I got to know because I got to know him very well. He came along quite a while after I was elected yeah. and was uh, – in the true sense of the word, a backbencher, but a hard-fighting conservative backbencher. Uh, what I particularly like about Jim Jordan and why I would tell more moderate members not to uh, run against him or vote against him or not support him in this effort is he is, in the true sense of the word, a regular guy. Yeah. The way he talks to people yeah. and even the the cultivated the way he dresses, you know, virtually never wearing a tie Uh, um, but just he is very relatable and the average joe or jill out across america looks at him and says wow he he's not aloof or arrogant
1: (laughs) i like him let me pick up on some of this when we come back jill when's the last time you met a jill (laughs) that's a great name but there are no jills anymore john shatting and i'll be right back well, I owe John Shattig an apology. He said average Joe or Jill. Uh, that's that's our White House. <laughs> it's Joe Biden and Jill Biden. I was making fun of him for the use of those uh, metaphoric names. Mr. Shattig, um one of the things that I thought was interesting about Newt Gingrich's speakership was he showed that the House of Representatives – could have a very serious and strong countervailing foreign policy, or at least encouraging foreign policy up against a Democratic Party White House, in this case, Bill Clinton's, particularly in Asia and the Middle East. And I, 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 I was thinking about that this week when I was thinking, boy, we sure could use a speaker uh, right about now. Um, because I think some of this pooch effort p-u-t-s-c-h pooch effort kind of didn't look around the corner that you know we're all hanging kind of by cobwebs here (laughs) and there are crises on the horizon we're now in the middle of a crisis no one knows how this is going to end no one knows what the next hour is going to bring out of the middle east but the potential for all kinds of explosive news uh and explosive history uh we're on a tinderbox right now uh This is a terrorist act the likes of which um, the Middle East hasn't seen in an extremely long time, uh, especially with regard to an ally of ours and especially with regard to the enormity of the abuse against – really uh, depravity against the notion of anything having to do with human civility. Uh, When you started hearing reports out of what was coming out of uh, the desert of Israel, the Negev Desert in Israel and outside of Gaza – on Saturday and Sunday, uh, just your your initial thoughts. What, what what did you think? What did you uh, what did you what did you think? And what did you, what do you, what would you say about it? I ask you that because so many people have a hard time finding the words right now. It's such a shock. It's such such a shock to the system to see this in that part, in any part of the world, in this in this part of our age.
2: In this case, it is a for me at least uh, a complete shock. Uh, less than two weeks ago, um, the leader of Saudi Arabia and the leader of Israel were on, I guess you'd call it live television in the United States, saying they thought there were real prospects uh, for peace between those two countries. And, and that was the logical result of a lot of hard work over a very long time. And it is, to me, as obvious as daylight follows darkness, that we, the United States, our sitting president, blew up that prospect for peace. Um, The one thing that Iran cannot tolerate... Could not tolerate, would not tolerate, and pretty clearly doesn't give a can I say damn mm-hmm. a damn about the consequences of was more peace uh, and the notion that Israel and Saudi Arabia might strike a priest a peace and and that each of the two leaders might say cordial things, admit the challenges, but nonetheless say wow you know we're making progress uh, that was fantastic. And when I say we are at fault, it's because all human conduct in today's world is interlinked. The world and human nature are pretty clear, and they are that people respond to consequences. They take a look at the situation around them, and they act accordingly. And in this case, we have in the White House— We elected a phenomenally weak leader who on foreign policy is as bad as on any of his policies and who projected uh, weakness from day one. Uh, 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 The current, not the immediately preceding president, but the president before that, Mr. Obama, went on an apology tour and that upset a lot of us. He was the elected president. He could go do that. But his apology tour didn't uh, result in conduct that told the world we were weak. We can make that argument. He was apologizing for our less than perfect past. In this case, the first significant thing the president did was the uh, exit from Afghanistan, which shockingly demonstrated he had no courage whatsoever, no no thought of the consequences of blowing that exit or of the message it sent. And the message it sent is very clear. The next thing he does is say, well, we wouldn't mind a small regional war between Ukraine and Russia over the borders.
1: Small incursions.
2: Small incursion. And the next thing we know, the entire country is being leveled. It's shocking to watch how much destruction there is and And we're teetering back and forth at the edge of nuclear war, so much so that people haven't people who hadn't thought nuclear war would ever be a real issue in their lifetime, have in the last ninety days or a year had to say, "hmm, maybe it could be uh, and now uh we have so thoroughly convinced one of our worst enemies, if not our worst enemy, in the world, not a powerful enemy but still a worst enemy, that we have uh Um, uh, uh, er that we have have, uh, tried and begged to be our friend, that we have shown no strength, only weakness, encouraged them in every bad habit they have, bulldozed money to them. Uh, They decide, well, we'll pay America back by killing, by murdering uh, hundreds, uh, maybe now more than that, Complete civilians, kids at a essentially a music concert is the way they started the war and and random bombings of civilian buildings and the taking of civilian captives to be tortured or held as for ransom or perhaps be used as human shields. Uh, This is not rocket science. If you have a leader that projects that kind of weakness, you are going to have this kind of conduct.
1: When you were in Congress and we were at war... Uh, In what was then called the Global War on Terrorism or GWOT. However, yeah, I think that's what the expression was, Global War on Terrorism. There was this weird John Kerry, Nancy Pelosi fascination with Syria. They seemed to think Syria and the Assad regime was the key to peace in the Middle East, and they tried to curry favor with Syria, even over and against the wishes of the administration. I remember Pelosi specifically traveling to meet with Assad over and against the wishes of the administration. Today, it seems like there's this Democratic Party fascination uh, with Iran as a key to peace. Now, ironically enough, I think Syria is a satrap of Iran in many respects, but What is it, John? Maybe you can talk about this when we come back on the other side of this break. What is it about the Democratic Party's fascination with these clearly thuggish regimes that are responsible for the world's worst forms of terrorism, state-sponsored terrorism? Why do they think appeasement towards these regimes holds any key to peace? Is it based on um, misplaced uh, sympathy? Is it based on misplaced ideological commitments and priorities? Is it maybe nothing new? Because you also served with Democrats who thought we could do the same with the Soviet Union in their day. And I wonder if maybe you can talk to me a little bit about the Democratic Party mindset from the view of Congress when we come back. John Shattig is my guest. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show. Congressman John Shattig is my guest. Congressman, the Democratic Party and foreign policy from the view of Congress. During the Soviet Union, you had uh, Ted Kennedy trying to appease the Soviets and undermine the Reagan regime. You had uh, congressmen like Ron Dellums from California doing much the same when it came to Central America, El Salvador, and Nicaragua. Uh, Today, you seem to see it— well back in the mid aughts you had it with syria and you had pelosi and those types with syria what is it now with iran is this all of a piece is it misplaced priorities is it um some kind of old fashioned notion that uh, that 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 those who are committed to empires of evil, as Ronald Reagan would have called it, can be bent toward peace with a liberal appeasement if we would only talk to them. What what is it that 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 seems to continually be the source of undermining a strong foreign policy from the perspective of the Democratic Party, with countries now like Iran?
2: Well. Uh... Since they took away my crystal ball or my ability to read minds yes, uh, when I left office, I can only give you my take. Sure. And my take is that it's traceable to the essential difference between conservatives and liberals. And fundamental, fundamentally, uh, I think that the liberal mind uh, does not believe, barely believes in good and evil to begin with, mm-hmm. uh, barely believes in truth or falsity. Uh, Kind of grudgingly acknowledges that those things do uh, occasionally manifest themselves, but they 're not inherently a part of any people, certainly not that uh, that some men are inherently evil. Uh, they are very committed to and th- we used to talk about this a lot relativism. Mm-hmm. Um, And to the notion that, well, you know, from their perspective, this conduct or that conduct might not be evil. Maybe for them they see it as good from their perspective, Mm -hmm. which might be what's going on with the current situation where uh, Americans, for a reason I can't comprehend, uh, do not see what Palestine or the Palestinians are doing right now as sheer evil. And so since they don't see those things, they inherently believe and and convince themselves, perhaps in their upbringing, that if we're just nice enough to them, if we just, you know, walk a mile in their shoes and recognized how badly they've been treated or mistreated, uh, if we show them that we are nice, i.e. if we appease them, in the case of Iran, bulldoze hard-earned American dollars to them in volumes that are hard to even comprehend— um, that will all work out well, and you just have to give it enough time. Um, I I view it as arrogance, uh, as belief in man's ability to do anything and everything. Uh, I believe it in part is an absence of a belief in uh, uh, a greater being, a you know, belief in God. Uh, 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 and they just think that, well, they're well-intended. And they're powerful. They worked hard to get their power. Uh, if they can just demonstrate uh, to the evil people of the world, the uh, mullahs of Iran, uh, that we're just nice people and we're willing to give them billions of dollars and we're willing to understand their problems, well, then surely they'll go along with us. And uh, the rea- I believe the reality is, unfortunately, there is good and evil and when you deal with uh, people who are deeply evil, uh, you can't judge them by a standard that pretends they haven't done what they've done. A lot of life is uh, how you talk versus how you act. That's what I was thinking about driving down here. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, to me, is the greatest illustration of that uh, judgment. That is say. Judge me by what I do, not by what I say. He, you know, he said he was going to be a strong president. To this day, he talks about still being a strong president. And yet he has invited chaos in the world and the deaths of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people because he projects this weakness. He, When he gave his acceptance speech, uh, he said, I'm going to be a uniter, not a divider. And he, he has been the best, biggest hardest-working divider we've had. <laughs> let, you were going me. through that one list. I thought, yeah, you had Democrats like those you listed. Yeah. And you had one Democrat who was the opposite, Scoop Jackson, yeah. who said, look, uh, uh, Ronald and Reagan and I agree that the best way to prevent war is to be prepared for it.
1: Yeah. Let me let me ask you this, too, as we go to break, so you can answer it on the other side, if you don't mind, John Shattuck. Is there also something in the Democratic Party that kind of buys into bits of our opponents' and our enemies' narrative about the United States. They kind of oh, I they think agree so. with agree Yeah, let me have you address that. Let me have you address that on the other side of this break. In other words, they really don't believe in American greatness, and they kind of accept the critique and condemnation of America just a little bit too easily. I'll have you address yourself to that when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's been a privilege to have Congressman John Shatigan's studio with me, helping us get a— Uh, Get home uh, from our day at work here in the the commute. John, um, the Democrats who believe in appeasement, even over and against serious requests from other parts of our government, other parts of uh, the academy not to appease our enemies, whether in the 70s and 80s it was the Soviet Union, whether it was Syria in the middle aughts or or Iran now – do you think that there's a part of the Democratic Party, and I'm not just talking about your Rashida Tlaibs and your Ilan Omar's, but I mean parts of the Democratic Party that run far deeper towards the perceptive middle, perceptive middle is probably the way to emphasize that, that actually agree with the condemnation and critique of America from our enemies, that buy into bits of what Iran has to say about us, that buy into bits about what – Hamas has to say about us.
2: Um, I think all human beings are tempted to go through life uh, focused on the negative. Uh, I know in my life, I I need to struggle to make sure I look at uh, all of the blessings God has given me and all the things uh, he has done for me and all of the uh, gifts I have uh, been given in my lifetime Uh, And I I think that there is a subset of Democrats who um, choose to look at life in that way. And if they're doing well, then they go the next step, which is to say, well, I'm guilty for that. I'm responsible for that. And so when they hear a debate, uh, let's say, about from the critics of America uh, about, for example, racial treatment and racial uh, discrimination Uh, they choose to believe the worst Um, and then they try to carry that out there is uh, arrogance is tied to it because they believe they can fix it but of course no fix is ever good enough it doesn't matter I think I told this story before when I was working in Washington a great deal of the time and riding around with cabbies. I never I don't think I ever found or that's maybe not true. Maybe on a few occasions I would find a cabbie who had come to America from somewhere else and was less than thrilled with America.
1: On very few occasions. Yeah,
2: very, very few occasions. For the most of them, they would shake their heads in bewilderment and say, what is wrong with you Americans yeah. for not realizing yeah. how great this country is and how much good it has done and tries to do every single day? Now, they wouldn't say to me, America's perfect. They got it. There are a lot of flawed people in the country. And, and the country as a nation makes lots of bad decisions. But uh, it's a country where both the people and the leaders at least strive and acknowledge that the goal is To do better for everybody, not just for my class. One of the things I hate in this society today is the politics of division. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the media and mostly the Democratic Party uh, want us to hate each other as long as we're in some different category. Uh, If you're uh, an Italian-American and I'm a German-American, we ought to hate each other. Uh, And it goes up and down the list. And that negativity it definitely affects a lot of people in the American uh, electorate. Some of them uh, hate America because of it. Some of them use that as a reason to, to be Democrats. Yeah. Oh, well, the Republicans don't even acknowledge that anybody is ever mistreated. So they are evil. I mean, uh, there, there was a member of the conference when I was there from New Jersey, a Democrat, uh, who every time he went to the floor, every single time he Ever spoke on the floor he would say something like republicans love to starve children mm-hmm. republicans believe that babies should be dr- drinking water with toxic chemicals in it and he would do that literally every time he spoke and it, it was impossible f- for me to believe he could believe it but he said it very con- convincingly so there is no question but that a deep core of their party uh wants to believe and chooses to believe the worst about America on whatever the topic of the moment is.
1: Do you believe, too? I mean, I don't know that this is even a question of belief. But when certain members of government do talk that way, it is picked up by our enemies. We had a meeting with a Chinese delegation in Alaska about a year ago and tried from the Department of State to talk to them about their oppression of the Uyghurs and they gave the lecture right back, said, well, we just watched what you went through through the year of 2020. You have no business lecturing us on racial. I mean, the idea that we are on par with the Uyghurs is the idea that the democratic left in this country has portrayed to the world.
2: Absolutely. Um, and it does immeasurable damage and our enemies relish in it every time we go in that direction. Mm-hmm. And it is a it is a failure to discern uh, between competing arguments, or to independently on their own judge uh, kind of the circumstances around them or the nations. One of the things that, uh, I didn't travel much before joining before getting elected to Congress, and I went on a lot of codels, almost none of them to very nice places. I can in fact, I'm not sure I can name a nice place, but I went to you know places where we were at war uh, and uh, and other places kind of on the way in and out, and you look at the rest of the world and you see how good Americans have it. You know, if you are born to born in the United States of America or become a citizen of the United States of America, you have it all. You have it light years ahead of anybody else. And foreigners who come here see it. Americans who have never been
1: anywhere else don't see it. I remember during 2020 and the riots, there was a moment when uh, school uh, school libraries uh, and, uh, and bookstores and children's sections were getting rid of Dr. Seuss because they thought the Sneetches book had something to do with racial animosity. And I was joking, you know, if a delegation from Darfur came to the United <laughs> States of America— realizing that America has a commitment to civil rights to see how we handled our civil rights problems here and what they could learn from us and saw what we were doing with regard to Dr. Seuss, they'd go home and say, that's not a serious country.
2: Look, you know, look at Africa, where they are now compelling children to uh, go get these uh, metals that we need for uh, our current technology. But I've also told the story on the air about we're in Saudi Arabia. It's late at night. We're getting this briefing. We're told that uh, all the cars on the highway next to us are being driven by men because mm-hmm. they don't allow, at that time, they didn't allow any women to drive. And this young kid, 26, 28 years old, says, uh, he'd just been told about that story. He says, well, if they don't let women drive, do they let them vote? Yeah. <laughs> 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 and the uh, embassy executive who was there with us said, "Vote oh. on what? Vote. You know, it's inconceivable to them that there could be a country the size of uh, Saudi Arabia and that they wouldn't allow people to vote on anything." <laughs> it's just like, really? They don't allow people to vote? You mean the world isn't a democracy? Who knew? <laughs> no.
1: We're not a serious country. Maybe we're going to have to become one again. We're going to have yeah, it to It looks like we're going to have
2: to become yeah. one again. Yeah. Thank and you, John. And it looks like we need leaders that are up to that task. Yeah.
1: Thank you, sir. We were in Jimmy Buffett Lane today, huh? Yeah, we had a few of them in a row there. That's good. Portions of this show brought to you by Y Refi. Dear people in our community who have... A great investment. Uh, It is an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return, up to 10.25 percent fixed rate of return. And it's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve, should you be concerned about possible recession, inflation or stock market volatility. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, and no penalty if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from YReFi. They are a due diligence approved firm. As I say, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return from them. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com or give him a call at 888-Y-REFI-24, 888-Y-REFI-24. 24 mister Shattuck was on to something interesting that uh, I should have chased down a little bit more, and maybe we'll do so next week when he comes back or tomorrow with you all if you want to. When he was talking about belief in God and when it comes to foreign policy and when it comes to understanding evil evil in this world, evil in the hearts of man. One of the things I think that we fail to do as a society, as a culture, is appreciate and understand that though we may not be so believing, that we may not be so adhering to our religious beliefs in this country, But that's not true of other countries, necessarily, especially when they're theocracies. Though we may not take religion seriously here, it is a failure of epic proportions to misunderstand that others do there. And when they speak in the name of God, they mean it. And you can tell they mean it when they act on it. And even if we're not talking about theologies, let's think about it in relationship to non-religious regimes let's think about it in relationship to communist regimes which are almost by definition indeed by definition not only a religious but anti-religious it is a failure of epic proportions for us to not think that they believe in their ideology when they do just because we don't believe in ours and perhaps these are the wages of us no longer believing strongly enough, in what we stand for in our own ideology. America, the United States of America, from its founding forward, but especially based on its founding, has an ideology. It is not an ideology of relativism. It is an ideology of serious understandings of natural law, liberty, and equality. The role of man to God, and the role of God to man, and the role of both, with species of animal. Because we don't believe it, we misunderstand other countries that believe in their ideologies, which are evil. And that's how we misunderstand evil. We do no favor to humanity by misunderstanding ourselves only to misunderstand others. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson. Class is dismissed.